Hello and welcome to Banter. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with Robert Doerr, AEI president, and we'll be your Banter hosts. Joining us today on Banter is one of our newest education scholars, Max Eden, who's a research fellow with us here at AEI, where he focuses on education reform, specifically K-12 education and early childhood education. Before rejoining AEI, where he was an RA, Max started out as a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Thanks for joining us on Banter, Max. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And Phoebe, before you ask the first question, don't run over that little part there you threw in there. Max is a <laughs> he's a homegrown. Yeah, I mean, one he's, of our own. He's proof to all those RAs in the building that it can could happen to you. You can, <laughs> you can come home again. That's true. So Phoebe, you are by popular demand been requested to ask the first question today. Sure. So Max, you know, a lot of your pieces deal with critical race theory, which is a term that We hear about a lot nowadays, very politicized on both sides. Can you start out by just telling us, you know, what that term means? Yeah, no, I mean, as you pointed out, it it is very politicized on both sides. I think both sides, when they invoke it or depending on how they position themselves, will try to mean different things by it. And so what kind of advocates and defenders of critical race theory say is that critical race theory is a legal academic scholarly discipline that tries to look to instances of past discrimination and identify ways in which effects of past discrimination persist in like present society. That is not what kind of conservatives and parents are worried about when they say critical race theory, however. What they're worried about is better reflected in what I would think is reasonable to call kind of popular or applied critical race theory, also known very cleverly as anti-racism, of whom the most popular proponent is Ibram X. Kendi. And the core of his argument is that the only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. That's pretty close to a direct quote that is pretty close to an overt call for racial discrimination against groups that have not traditionally faced it. And so what you are seeing from parents is a concern both in terms of practice and in terms of rhetoric that we are seeing a new form of institutionalized racism taking form in our schools. Sometimes this is a language thing. You can see schools talk about whiteness, the need to dismantle whiteness, this equation of moral qualities with race that profoundly alarms parents. Sometimes you see it in explicit practices that up until a few years ago, I think were universally horrifying, but have been renamed in in anti-racist terms. You know, segregation has been renamed affinity space. (laughs) Whereas we all look back at signs that said whites, whites only with, I think, proper horror, we now find school districts across the country engaging in, you know, black or BIPOC, as they say, only affinity spaces. And if you question them, then according to this ideology of anti-racism, critical race theory, it goes by other names as well popularly, you are basically a racist if you argue against things that were classically defined as racism. So is there a documentation or or quantification of the extent to which, let's just say, the worst kinds of aspects of this are in the seventh grade curriculum in America? It is difficult to quantify, and that's probably part of the source of the broad debate around it. I mean, you know, I have done journalistic stuff. Chris Rufo has very famously done a broad series. It's clearly strongly prevalent in major urban school districts, and that is the kind of thing that parents see. They read on, they read at Newsweek, they read at Cine Journal, they see on Fox, and they worry: Is this going on in my kid's school too? And the answer is: We don't really, we don't really know. What we do know, and what I think is is disconcerting, and why this kind of popular reaction or kind of consciousness raising is useful is that we do know that a lot of institutions that train teachers, form teachers, inform teachers are broadly bought into this ideology. Rick Hess and Lindsey Burke of AEI and Heritage had a paper a couple of weeks ago through AEI that showed that just about half of education school professors focus on race as a key part of their academic work. So we kind of have a teacher training setup where we marinate teachers in this idea set before we put them in the classroom. You will see in Democrat and Republican alike State Department of Education websites references to the Southern Poverty Law Center's Teaching Tolerance Program. It's now called Learning for Justice, which is all thoroughly infused in critical race theory. So there is a certain kind of documentation gap that's starting to be anecdotally filled by groups like Parents Defending Education that's kind of crowdsourcing. Tell us what you're seeing. 
We'll publicize it. We'll get it out. But it's hard to say exactly how widespread this issue is. But when it appears in a school district, I've just sort of randomly picked seventh grade because those were in social sciences and sort of becomes a part of your, or at least in my back, my history did. Is it appearing in one class or in all classes? And is it appearing, you know, at a particular time in the, in the, in the middle school or in the high, early high school or in even elementary school? I'm just get, trying to get a sense of where it happened. Yeah. I don't know that there's like a, that that's really the, the vector to think about how this stuff gets into a school and how it affects the culture. The better vector to think about is through teacher training and the changing of school culture as a result of kind of critical race theory, diversity, equity, inclusion training. What you'll, when you speak with teachers, you'll kind of hear that we had this training. We learned that like whiteness is, or objectivity, sense of urgency, all these things are part of white supremacy culture that we have to dismantle. Most teachers won't really believe this. A few teachers will. <laughs> they will change the culture of the school because the terms of debate are set differently. Oh, so that, that means that, that one of the most important cultures, one of the most important aspects of a, the culture of a school is the way at which it looks at different outcomes in academics. Mm -hmm. So and I just came from a conversation earlier today with people who associate with a prominent university. And there was concern that just the meritocracy of test scores that could be distributed differently by race in a particular classroom or a particular curriculum, that that is viewed by critical race theorists or supporters as inherently racist. Does that mean, therefore, they don't want to give tests or they don't want to, they don't want to ever grade people in a way that might lead to different outcomes for different groups. Yeah, I mean, that is that is where it's trending. And that is what folks like Ibram X. Kendi will write, that the differences that we see in test scores cannot possibly be attributed to, you know, differences in student achievement, student aptitude. This is called effort. Effort. This is popularly called to be a, a deficit mindset that teachers are supposed to be trained out of. Traditionally, we view what they call a deficit mindset of kids need to be taught things. But this is all part and parcel of why you are seeing colleges take away SAT, ACT, why you're seeing folks like Jamal Bowman, a congressman, put out a cartoon that, you know, equates different races to different animals <laughs> and equates a standardized test to climbing a tree. I think it can be partly understood as a, a kind of a nervous breakdown of sorts of the education reform movement, where we tried for years documenting a disparity that exists by race, trying to solve it through the school, realizing these solutions did not move the needle, and then as a result, fully condemning the school as an institution and assuming the school perpetuates it, and also by extension, condemning the instrument of measurement as inherently racist. But it's merging with this pushback against high stakes testing, too, mm -hmm. which is, and I just wondered, we've started out on critical race theory, and you've given us a, a description of the problem and the issue and that it's out there and people are watching it and a lot of parents are reacting to it, which is all good. And you have to as well, or part of the debate. But where did you come down before critical race theory on high stake testing? Yeah, I was more skeptical of high stakes testing as it existed under the No Child Left Behind regime. I'm somewhat actually skeptical that we still have anything that's reasonably recognizable as high stakes testing. This is kind of one of the, the strange aspects of education policy in that there aren't really strong stakes attached to these tests anymore, <laughs> but there are perceived to be stakes attached to them. And then the perception that there are high stakes attached to them can still kind of change practice in ways that squeeze out the arts, the sciences in favor of like math and reading instruction that is specifically tailored to achieve a higher test score. So I was probably more skeptical or certainly not an active like proponent or cheerleader of high stakes accountability of the sort that I think. So helps. for other yeah. reasons than, than this new one. Yes. You had some concerns about the testing regimes as monitoring. Yeah. I'm not at all progress. sympathetic to these concerns. I think there are other concerns. <laughs> Valid concerns yes. as well. Yeah. Okay. Since we're on that what is the way to evaluate the success of an educational institution, a school, a teacher? How do you know whether they've helped their students achieve proficiency yeah. without tests? I'm not saying that like there should not be tests. Okay. 
the stakes aspect of the test, the No Child Left Behind regimen, where it was if the school does not achieve X benchmarks by oh, one year, oh, oh. So this happens. You're sort of saying they did the test, but the schools and the students didn't pay the consequences for poor performance. Well, I'm also skeptical that a theory of action that says that a school should experience kind of bureaucratic consequences for poor performance, I'm skeptical that that genuinely drives improvement. I'm Even a little shame? A little shame doesn't help? Well, a little shame can come through simply with the posting of the test score results. Yeah. Right? And that's yeah. that's the transparency side. And I don't personally view that as, as high stakes. Oh, you don't? I view that as a kind of information sharing with parents that they form decisions about. So I, you know, I do believe that students should be tested at a somewhat regular basis, that those test scores should be made public, that those test scores should inform parent perceptions, and that they will School be board elections. School board elections. Superintendent choices. Yes. Because I was, I met my wife. We were both community newspaper editors and reporters, and our, we both loved covering the test results of the school districts. And then we did little charts showing <laughs> which one was better than the other. We weren't even parents then, but yeah. we, we love that competition. And shame does work. No, shame does work. Transparency does work. Like parents being able to see when when they buy a house for states that have less of a robust school choice regimen, what school districts are rated. That's a useful thing that helps encourage other school districts to try to improve. But that, to me, doesn't fit the maybe inside baseball definition of high stakes insofar as like the state education agency will impose a consequence on a school district that they will have to do X, Y, or Z if they don't hit this metric. Yeah, That, that wasn't real. Now, you also raised the issue of these education schools. This has always been a bugaboo of the Washington Monthly and other places I've worked in the past. That in order to teach in a public school, you had to get a certificate from, you have an education major or mm-hmm. whatever. And we never thought that really was worth that much, or at least the places I've worked for in the past. And I can see how that culture could be inculcated through that environment. So is this latest concern about a pushing of a certain view on critical race theory, does it, is it on top of other concerns that you have long held? about the what goes on in these education schools and and the the fact that in order to teach you need one of the cert, a certificate what's your view on that yes no and and my my hope frankly and I will try to you know write things and push things through traditional channels and and our conservative education reform network is that the the raising of this critical race theory issue can help us finally address the broader other problems related to schools of education right i mean one is what i described there is a strong ideological monoculture in these schools. I have a, a friend I grew up with, became a teacher, not an ideological guy either way, but he kind of said, by the time I got out of there, I couldn't help but think of everything in terms of race, sex, gender, etc. It was just baked into him. That's not the only problem with these institutions. There are, you alluded to the Washington Monthly, there's kind of famously no evidence whatsoever that this helps. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. It's, yeah. So it is, it is at the very best useless, but of course, things that are useless can still have a huge cost, both in terms of state finance, personal finance for teachers, and the kind of talent that you can attract into schools. A lot of people could be fantastic teachers, but will not do it because they will not waste years of their life and their money in order to get a genuinely useless degree to have the permission to teach students. That's another problem. The third, which I, which is, is that like these schools of education don't teach, it's not just that they're useless, they actually teach bad things in terms of pedagogy. They're very much like into the into the, the constructivist school of pedagogical thought, whole language school of reading instruction. It's always hard to say, we know how to do X, Y, or Z, but we do have some idea of the best way to teach literacy in grades K through three. And these schools of education not only don't teach that, but they teach something that is kind of the opposite of that. So, you know, it would be a great long-term, mid-term side effect of this debate that we're having on critical race theory if it results in more states kind of following the Arizona model of opening up the teacher licensure system, allowing skilled professionals from a variety of backgrounds a quicker avenue and entree into teaching. So I'm going to just ask a couple, one more question, because you've now, you sort of alluded to a long-term goal. And and, and as we, as Phoebe pointed out, you are, you've come back home after being at AI then you went off and worked at another think tank, which we won't, which we won't mention, but, <laughs> and now you've come back. But so my, my thought is, is that you really understand how a scholar at a think tank like yourself now 
can use this opportunity you've been given to do something, or at least I think you do. So tell me, what's your goal? What do you want to achieve as an education scholar at AEI? Yeah. With the caveat that AEI doesn't have institutional positions or priorities, I certainly personally do. <laughs> right. And in my, in my past work, I kind of had set a target of, I want to try to get this federal Dear Colleague letter on school discipline that the Obama administration put in. I want to get that rescinded mm -hmm. by the Trump administration, which I was able to do through a combination of kind of reporting, more re academic research work. And let's just give a little background on yeah. that. I mean, I think I know, I know what this is about. This is, there are some, well, maybe I'm, maybe you should just give it, you give the background, but the Obama administration put a letter out to all school districts mm -hmm. using the power of the federal power to, to communicate something about discipline and what did it say and what was wrong with it? Yes. So it used what was called a dear colleague letter, which is not technically a regulation, but in practice has the force of a regulation which switched the standard for civil rights enforcement on school discipline from disparate treatment to disparate impact. And so traditionally, the role of the Office for Civil Rights in the Department of Education was if a black student and a white student both swear at a teacher and the black student gets expelled and the white student gets a slap on the wrist of detention, that is racial discrimination. Clearly. That is wrong. That right. should, there should be a federal backstop for that. The Obama Department of Education changed that to effectively, if if two black students and one white student all swear at a teacher and all, all receive the same punishment, that may or may not be a civil rights violation, depending on the racial composition of the school district. <laughs> it went from disparate treatment to disparate impact. Schools were kind of prejudged to be possibly in violation of federal civil rights statute based solely on their discipline statistics. Right. But let's be clear about that. Yes. That meant that if the the school district was 50% white and 50% black. Yes. And 75% of the disciplinary proceedings or efforts fell on the, on black students and only 25 on white. That by itself proved a potential evidence of... Well, according to the Obama administration, yeah. it proved potential evidence of illegal racial discrimination under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. Yes, that's what they did that was wrong. Yes, and, and then, then underneath that, what they did that was further wrong was that these investigations that they did were not actually investigations. They could only have the outcome of being closed when school districts ad agreed to adopt the Obama administration's preferred policies on discipline, which in my judgment, and I think by the best reading of research, are really counterproductive, destabilized classrooms, harm learning. And so traditional civil rights enforcement actually became a tool of policy change proactively done by the Department of Education. And so this was something that when I was at my, my former employer, the last think tank I worked at, I made yeah, a goal. Wait, wait, of, just, I wanna, I'm interested yeah. in that. So that, that using of the civil rights enforcement to change policy. So give me an example of how under the Obama administration preferred policy a particular act of what might be called bad behavior would lead to one outcome, but under another way of looking at it might lead to a different outcome. I mean, give me an example. Yeah. So one example that I've written about before is Oklahoma, the Oklahoma City School District, which is one of the districts that got investigated under this standard. And the allegation that was made that opened the investigation was an African-American student said, I did the exact same thing as a white student and I was treated unequally, right? When the Department of Education looked into that, they found, actually, you did something different from the white student. And also, parenthetically, it was not a white student, but a Hispanic student. There was no actual violation of civil rights law here. Previously, would have been case closed. Under the Obama Department of Education, the case became a systemic investigation into the school district based on their overall discipline numbers that they forced policy shifts onto the Oklahoma City School District policy shifts that teachers overwhelmingly said destabilized the classrooms, told kind of horror That's what stories. I want to know. Yes. What, what's a policy? Give me an example. I'm just thinking, yeah, yeah. you know, I'm thinking of, you know, I had a pretty unruly sixth grade classroom and I'm just trying to know what, yeah. what is a policy in an unruly classroom that's okay with some, but not okay with others? No, I mean, so the driving bureaucratic force was that the memo went down from the superintendents to principals to teachers that you should not discipline and you'll be in trouble if you send a kid to the principal's class. Okay, so it was just office. basically don't, don't suspend. Operation, don't. Operationally, it was don't suspend. They will say we're trying to replace punitive punishment with restorative justice. 
dialogue-based guided conversations to understand. Keep it in the classroom. Problem. Don't send the, the disruptor out of the classroom. Operationally, they just That's gave what it students a massive can... subsidy for for disorder without in which they would not be asked to be to go to the principal's office. Correct. And then, That's the then the suspension numbers will go down yeah, and yeah. then you'll say victory. And then all the, the teachers so, will say this is terrible. So you saw this and the Trump administration comes in and you say, I think we can get this reversed. Yeah. And what tell us how that happened. Well, frankly, I expected them to reverse it somewhat, somewhat quickly. But they as time went on, they hadn't done it yet. And as I've kind of later talked to some folks in there, they They've pointed out, you know, on the other this starts to get back to your question. On the other side, there are all of these groups that always will advocate for kind of liberal policies, left policies, progressive policies. There weren't that many people out there saying, like, this is this is bad policy. This is this should be rescinded. So my actions were somewhat twofold. One was to kind of bang the drum in the court of public opinion and to write op-eds trying to explain what this actually was, what happened to take and put out all of the research around it to document all of the academic evidence that these policies that are being promoted were hurting learning. And then I also, kind of one of the things that ended up being key to it was I ended up going down to Parkland, Florida in the wake of the school shooting, meeting one of the fathers of the victims, digging into what went wrong in the school district there, which were not exclusively caused by these kind of policies, but partly attributable to them. And kind of making the public case of the worst things that can happen in these policy regimes. And eventually, after kind of taking it from a your your op-ed route, your research route, your your book and, and well, the book route, you then wrote a book. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I did not realize that the book was about this public policy issue as much as on, about other things. Yeah, no, it it started with my concern. That, you know, after the Parkland school shooting, the, the Washington Post ran this article saying, well, this isn't a case of somebody slipping through the cracks because this is a school district that adopted all of these progressive discipline policies that didn't suspend, didn't expel, didn't arrest, tried to do restorative justice interventions. And they just must have hit the limit of what could have been done by a school to stop this. But at the same time, there were all these students who came forward saying we, he brought bullets to school. He brought knives to school. He threatened to kill us. He threatened to rape our families. Like we all knew that he was going to do this. We saw something. We said something. The school didn't do anything. Why? And so I was drawn to it to figure out, well, this is a school district that was kind of a first mover in this disciplinary push. To be like what President Obama wanted him to be. Yes, actually, it was in arguably, I think, pretty reasonably arguably, kind of the model for the policy initiatives that were then spread across the country by this Dear Colleague letter. They were pioneered in Broward oh, County. Really? By Robert Runcie, who used to be Arnie Duncan, former Obama Secretary of Education, used to be his IT guy, his chief of staff. <laughs> he goes down to Broward County. By my reckoning, and I've never put this in print because I'm not a thousand percent sure that I'm correct, but I think that Broward County might have been possibly the only, certainly one of a handful of major school districts that took these policy initiatives without being under investigation by the Department of Education already. So was it the book about the high-profile tragedy that had the biggest impact on getting the Trump administration to speed it up? I think so, at the end of the day. Some conversations that I had kind of after the fact with Trump administration officials and, and hearing some things about the so way the they, sausage So they were made. elected in 16, Betsy comes in mm. in 17. When did they rescind their policy? December of 18. It takes... The the grinds of the what is it the, the rules of justice grind slowly or something yeah. like no, that. No, but it no, it, it takes time. And as I as like as DeVos as DeVos Secretary DeVos as Secretary DeVos you buddy boy. Oh, I know. That's it to you, Secretary yeah. DeVos. To me, yes. As Secretary DeVos, kind of, I think would would say one can't make a policy shift in a vacuum. The ground has to be prepared. The arguments have to be made. People have to be marshaled. And there is tragically little of that on the right compared to the left in general. And so this is something that my my hope in terms of like bridging kind of my scholarly writing and also our work with the Conservative Education Reform Network is to help both, you know, craft the best arguments, craft the best policies, but also craft a coalition of other folks who can actually push. But them. just for our listeners, yes. before we get to the Conservative Education Reform Network, they rescind the policy. They put out a new policy. School districts that are interested in being able to, you know, have run discipline in a way that we think is better for order in the classroom is able to do it. And now what's the status? Now the status is that 
the Dear Colleague letter in question almost certainly will be reinstated. It's only a question. Oh, the of, one of Obama. The one of Obama. The school districts had a two-year reprieve from worrying the Department of Education might come knocking at their door and harassing them into adopting different discipline policies. The woman who was about to be the leader of the Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Education is going to be the same woman who did this under the Obama administration. And so this policy kind of will come back into play if it isn't already being done behind the scenes, which it, it might be. So, and there's no, there's no stopping them. This isn't one of the things that they might say, well, you know what, maybe the, maybe the Trump administration was right about this. No, there's, there's, no, there's no stopping them. I mean, they're, they're firmly convinced that this, was, this is the right thing to do. They actually, they had, a, they had a public event on the anniversary of Brown v. Board Education where they kind of teased further action on this. And some of the panelists even indicated that they might try to have an intersectional component to it. So to both judge discipline by by race and also by gender identity or sexual orientation, which brings up a kind of a strange mental image of a kid who's in trouble in the teacher's in the principal's office and saying, okay, so are you are you gender non-binary? Are you gay or lesbian? Like it's not clear if they can do that, but given that they're putting on an event where those ideas are being pushed, I think it's we can expect that they will reinstate it. The open question is whether there will be pushback from the states on this. There was none under the Obama administration. I think there could theoretically be a lawsuit to be lodged by a state superintendent, by Republican attorneys general to say we don't. But non-pushback from the states doesn't mean there won't be pushback from conservatives or parents or. Oh, I, and I, I expect there, there will be this time in a way that there wasn't the last time around because there wasn't a real sense of understanding or consciousness about what was actually being done to schools and what the policies were doing to the classrooms. So that lack of pushback in the Obama administration, uh, one could interpret, maybe you interpret it as the extent to which the education establishment is captured by this way of thinking and afraid to challenge it. That could lead to the creation of a, a network of education leaders who are not captured by that way of seeing things and aren't part of the state bureaucracies, but are maybe actually advocates for change. And, and, and is that what the Conservative Education Reform Network is? Yes. It's an effort to get kind of self-identified conservatives who might be members of the bureaucracy. They might be state superintendents. They might be state board of education members, might be school superintendents, school board members. Charter school presidents. Charter school presidents, yeah. public school teachers who, you know, are happy to identify as conservative and who want a forum to talk amongst themselves, speak amongst themselves, and at some point organize amongst themselves to put forward arguments and policy initiatives that will kind of run counter to what we will see coming out of the Biden Department of Education and what I think most of the broader educational establishment is, for one reason or other, predisposed to just accept and run with. Is one of your takeaways from kind of that saga with the Biden education policy that it may be more tactical for that network to focus on state and local policies after seeing how when you nationalize these issues, they can just kind of flip with given administrations. Yeah. And I think that's one of my hopes with the conservative education reform network. I mean, as I've kind of said before, I can't remember if I ever said it to you, Robert, but I, I think that the, we're going to see a, a, just a tremendous amount of energy from conservative grassroots activists, from state legislators, a desire to do something, especially as more and more kind of dictates come down from DC, from the Biden Department of Education that genuinely can't be stopped on their own terms. You can't persuade Miguel Cardona, Cindy Martin to change course by argument. This will all create a great deal of energy that I think will is already and will certainly become more powerful than what we saw in the backlash against the Common Core. But with the Common Core, that energy kind of boiled over and it went nowhere and it wasn't really channeled to any productive purpose. I think there are a variety of policy initiatives that state legislatures, state superintendents could take that can channel this popular energy to a very productive use in the same vein as we kind of discussed earlier, that the, the raised consciousness of this critical race theory ideology in our institutions might finally prompt state legislatures to change their teacher evaluation requirements. I think it could also prompt state legislatures to pursue different forms of school choice with more wind at their back move school board elections on cycle to make local school districts actually genuinely democratically accountable rather than accountable to the people the teachers unions can manage to turn out for the third Tuesday in May. 
So yeah, a lot of the action in the next two to four years will be in the States. And that's a large part of what I hope through this network to be able to, to foster and facilitate. So when I talked to you and, and Rick Hess, who heads our education policy work recently, you sort of listed out the, the number of different policy objectives or concerns of, of the members of the network. And they're pretty, they're not all the same. Mm. I mean, some people are focusing on A and others are focusing on B and others are focusing on C. So what would your, in your mind, based on you've had a, your, your first convening, you've been talking to these leaders at the local and state level, you were going to say, what are the three things that, that you seem are the biggest issues that they're concerned about or focus on? What would they be? Yeah, I would say one is is critical race theory, which is also a proxy for or a proxy term for a broader kind of question of the ideological valence of our schools and the both like prudential and practical question of like what can be done to push back against that that's productive rather than counterproductive. Something that is similar in a similar vein is this question of civics, right? Um, there's a sense that part of why we are where we are as a country is a, is a crisis of civics education. Kids don't know anything. There are famous, famous studies that if I were quicker on my feet, I could, I could recite directly about how few even adults understand that there are three branches of government and what their respective roles are. Right. And there's a, a big concern and a divide that this budding effort to reinvigorate civics education might end up being broadly captured by folks who want to promote action civics, a view of civics that will train students to be activists, which kind of gets back into the first concern of the ideological direction of schools. So the ideological direction of schools yeah. includes all of that, yeah. plus the adoption of the 1619 curriculum. Mm -hmm. So that's the number one thing. They're, they're, what you're hearing more and more is, is not some other things, not school choice, not vouchers. It's we don't like what our kids are being taught yes. about America yes. or about history and civics. And yeah. that's really the, hot, the hottest of all right now. That's really the hottest of all right now. Really? I mean, there's, there's always going to be school choice. <laughs> As, that, was, that was going to be the third, even though the first two kind of go into <laughs> one. And so you merge the first two, ideological and civics are one Well, I, they, they're connected. I would view them as distinct oh, you um, would. because okay. I think they, they can be distinctly addressed in terms of policy and in terms of like discussion, but they fall under the umbrella concern of the ideological bent of public institutions. And then the third is just, as I said, school choice, which is we, we saw kind of the, okay. the best spring for school choice that we've seen in a decade this past spring. But, you know, school choice is a, is a reaction to the problems of the first two. Mm -hmm. I mean, that nothing drives parents away from schools than an ideological sort well, of so this is this agenda. is part of this is part of what I think will be will be interesting. Right. There traditionally the school choice movement would have been was allergic to what you just said <laughs> for the kind of the common school choice consensus. It was that this should be about building a bipartisan bridge between left and right, getting some urban Democrats on board with suburban and rural Republicans to push programs that largely serve disadvantaged students of color. And if you want to build that coalition, you can't make a cultural integrity, culture war oh, argument. The question that I have, my personal belief, and, and I can't represent certain membership, I think membership is, is split on this, is whether that's the best way to go. I mean, what, when West Virginia passes universal ESAs, they do so on an explicitly Republican basis. So they do so kind of tying in these concerns. When Florida expands its school choice programs, it's doing so solely party line, Arizona solely party line. I think one of the interesting questions of school choice will be how does the, the movement and the political reaction filter into what we discussed earlier? You know, does this become a kind of a a populist conservative rallying cry that if you don't like what your kids are being taught at school, you should have a right to take them elsewhere and you should have that leverage over the public schools. But when you do make that argument, you will necessarily alienate the, the kind of traditional center left social justice minded constituencies that had always been kind of the bread and butter of the school choice strategy. Well, now, wait a minute there. Uh, <laughs> when you say bread and butter of the school choice, you mean the, the principal beneficiaries and of the or where the action was? I mean that my in my judgment, philanthropic foundations that funded the movement, organizations yes. that advanced it did so under 
the theory of action that I articulated, a yes. bipartisan, equity-oriented, efficiency-oriented, non-confrontational. Directed, directed at very poor performing. Directed at very poor performing. Urban school districts with high minority population. Yes. And then, and the question is whether that was the best political strategy that could have been pursued. It's certainly a very strategy that seems very satisfying. There's a lot of moral gr- high ground to be had. But I'm not so. I'm not so sure that a that the school choice argument based on ideological and sort of what they're teaching in the schools wouldn't work in in urban minority districts too. Well, so this is one thing that I think will be interesting, right? I mean, a lot of the in a lot of ways, the kind of progressive social justice left does not speak for the values of urban constituents. Exactly. I don't think I've quite written this yet. I've certainly said it privately plenty. But if you, in my mind, a real kind of bipartisan cultural approach to school choice is a socially conservative approach because there are many, you know, African-American, Hispanic ministers, parents who see who, you know, might, aren't happy with. Yeah, they might absolutely believe in, in, in the top line of Black Lives Matter. They might absolutely, you know, believe in a lot of progressive political things. But there are some things that really irk them, you know. They, they do not want their kids being sent to an elementary school that might encourage them to explore alternate gender identities. That's not really representative of, of their values. And like, I suspect that they also could object to this opposition to merit. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, nobody knows the benefits of competition better than anybody who spent any time in an athletic field. No. There's no equity versus equality on an athletic field. You're either good or you're not good. No, and they would certainly object to... Uh, Let's say they started telling people that yeah, the starting five had to be, you know, representative of the racial breakup of the school, not of who the best five guys on the basketball court are. Yeah, no. I it, played basketball. Nobody would accept that. No, and they would not accept that the nuclear family is an inherently Western prescribed white institution. So... Or that, or that you could also, or on issues concerning faith. I think there are many, many arguments to be made that will have a broader appeal as the ideological ground has shifted so quickly in the nonprofit, philanthropic <laughs> and cultural world that it allows for new lines of argument and new coalitions. Sometimes I think about with scholars, the, the, the mediums that they play in. So mm-hmm. you play in this building of a network of leaders around the country. That's a medium. That's a, that's a role. You write op-eds, mm-hmm. I presume. You write longer form essays. Mm-hmm. You testify before Congress, mm-hmm. and you do. You're also a guy who will do a, a video or a movie, or right? Didn't you do something? That was yeah, well, I did. A, I mean, I've done. I've done some TV appearances. I've done a, a PragerU kind of five minute video on yeah. these kind of cultural questions. Yeah, um, yeah. So, which which do you like best, and which do you think is the most effective? You also wrote a book. Yeah. Which is the medium which you think is the way in which you can drive the debate the most effectively? Frankly, probably op-eds are still, I think, the bread and butter of putting good arguments into the public discourse. I mean, to take, to take the, the critical race theory issue, right, and the, this question of definitions, one thing I've tried to do consistently in my short-form work is to explain that at, at root, this is a question of applying the Civil Rights Act equally. And to my knowledge, I was the first person to write it in that way. I've tried to write it in that way every single time. And we are now seeing folks like the Montana State Attorney General like, issue a legal opinion saying, hey, this, this violates Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. So I still, I'm not quite the, a new media player, a social media player. I still believe like a, a solidly argued opinion editorial can provide a lot of good framing and direction to debates. Phoebe, what about him getting called up by reporters who are doing stories about education policy. Are you, is he, is he a player in that world? Yeah, I would say so. That is hard because by my opinion, which I have made public before, both in social media and writing, a lot of these journalists have strong partisan ideological commitments that they will not admit to themselves. (laughs) And I sincerely doubt that, at least in my issue and in education, the traditional kind of think tank vector of influence where you put out research, you put an argument that gets picked up through traditional media and filters out into the debate. I don't think that works when it comes to a lot of these kind of cultural critical race theory questions. A lot of the the pieces that I've been reading on this broadly frame it, there was a, 
an article in U.S. News and World Report, which didn't mention parent concerns about like overt racially discriminatory practices, which is a huge part of the critical race theory concern, didn't mention parent concerns about critical race theory as a proxy for kind of postmodernist ideology that is anti-enlightenment, anti-rule of law. According to this reporter, this concern is coming because some conservatives are, quote, close quote, paraphrase, really, really upset about the Biden administration's attempts to deal with the sprawling repercussions of slavery. <laughs> so I'm, yeah. I, I, I'm not the... So in other words, you're not blaming Phoebe for not getting... <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I, I'm either blaming myself or them, and yeah. uh, depending on one's perspective. Now, last question for me. You wrote a piece early in your new rendition of AI, not that early, but fairly recently, and it had a quite a provocative title. <laughs> and I'm curious, I want to know from both Phoebe and from you on this, was there blowback and do you have any response to it? And the, the t- title was Ban Critical Race Theory Now. And was there blowback? And Phoebe, did you feel any of it? And or not? Or maybe I'm making an issue that isn't, it doesn't exist. No, there wasn't. I think I don't want to give myself like too much credit for things that happen around. But if anything, the winds kept on blowing in this direction even harder after the fact. Okay. And you know, as as Phoebe knows, we don't always choose titles as <laughs> yeah. as authors. And and the argument that I really tried to make in that piece was kind of what I articulated earlier that operationally banning critical race theory equals enforcing the Civil Rights Act equally across all students. So there was a, a provocative title under which I think there's like a, a deeply moral and hard to argue directly against message that I think is spreading pretty effectively. The reason I say it is because, you know, we, be, we are big proponents of the academic freedom mm-hmm. and there is this other cultural war going on involving conservatives and others who are very upset about cancel culture and yes. people being, you know, disinvited from speaking engagements and hounded out of classrooms and had their op-eds be withdrawn because of pressure. And of course, I think that's a big issue. And I think we should, we should stand against that. Others are thinking that it's, it's a sort of overplayed by the right. Or it's really a rare circumstance and they're just trying to score political points. And then you come along and say, <laughs> <laughs> we should ban this thing that might be taught in schools. Right. And all of a sudden I get accused of supporting a scholar who wants to cancel a curriculum. Right. And that's what, that was the blowback that I felt. And apparently it didn't boil down to you at no, all. No, it didn't boil down to me. <laughs> See, that's my job. I, I keep it from you. <laughs> I don't, and I don't think... I it's don't a think, fair criticism. Well, no, I don't, I don't think it is a fair criticism. Yeah. I mean, I think properly read my piece and my work and a lot of, not all of, but a lot of the laws that are being advanced under this kind of broad idiomatic banner of, of ban CRT are pretty plain and explicit and don't actually ban, most of them don't actually ban the teaching of critical race theory. Most of them say something to the effect of a school shall not compel a student to personally affirm that one race is inherently superior or inferior. I got it. A school shall not compel a student to affirm that an individual is inherently guilty. Really, it's a defense of freedom. Really, it's, really it's 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 a defense of like traditional civil rights act enforcement, which if we're going to be fully honest with ourselves, does naturally cut against free expression in some ways. I mean, there are a lot of things that you cannot say in schools and that we've decided is appropriate to not say in schools. I think there are some, there are some bills that like go beyond that and that I, I haven't pointed out publicly, but there are some provisions that I think really raise this issue in a way that is provocative that I'm not sure if I would necessarily support but for the most part, most of them don't do what they are accused of doing. And it becomes part of this political rhetorical shell game of how do you how do you try to kind of take, frankly, take the moral high ground when one side has redefined racism as anti-racism and figuring out a way to advocate for what I think most Americans still believe in effectively in a political arena where most of the terms of debate are twisted. What's next for you? What are you working on now? Well, I mean, the critical race theory thing will remain live for some time. Part of what I'm doing is also kind of commissioning essays and putting them out and hoping that they will make policy change. I mean, one thing we've talked about before online that we'll have a couple pieces coming out on in the fall that I hope to, I hope will make 
a big splash is we'll have the first kind of descriptive analysis of the pervasiveness of diversity, equity, and inclusion statements as part of the hiring process for academia, right? Because kind of talk about academic freedom, I won't give the top line numbers yet, but it's becoming more common for professors to be hired or promoted based in part on their commitment to a particular ideology. And so part of what we'll be doing this summer, fall is documenting that. Part of what we'll be doing is also writing, uh, publishing a strong argument against that in the hope that a lot of states can get ahead of this. It's not everywhere yet, but it's trending there. So we will be making a kind of a more classical defense of academic freedom in that way. There's going to be a paper coming out that I'm excited to write around for my former think tank employer, not going to be an AI paper on the effects of moving school board elections on cycle on the politics and the principles of school board members, which I think is a a huge part of this problem, this broader problem, right? I mean, the ultimate solution to, to critical race theory in the broader way of defining it isn't solely to, to ban it. I mean, we should help states enforce the civil rights act and civil rights law in a neutral and even headed way. And that's one part of it. Part of it is that school boards are out of step with their constituents. Yeah. That can be fixed in a different way. Part of it is that parents have a hell of a hard time looking when you at say on cycle, you just mean that the election is the same Tuesday that other elections are yes. held. So people are doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So you so you don't you don't get six percent turnout. You get 50 percent turnout <laughs> and you get candidates who are more representative of the median voter and therefore and are also like elected not surreptitiously, but as part of a, a more proper political campaign where they have to meet with their constituents and talk to them and figure out their values. Yeah. In the higher education context or anywhere in a school or an organization, well, where do you stand on mandated racial sensitivity training? Is that something that is viewed as an infringement on people's academic freedom also? It should be. I mean, it is inherent. This is a probably a short form piece I'll hopefully have coming out in the next couple of weeks. I mean, there's a strong argument that this is a violation of the First Amendment's anti-compelled speech clauses, right? I mean, it's it's almost strange that it's useless to argue that this stuff doesn't work. Like, they know that this stuff doesn't work. There's no real evidence that diversity trainings promote greater cohesion, greater understanding. There's a reasonable amount of evidence that the types that are now being pushed actually harm the social fabric of organizations. This all becomes a kind of de facto ideological requirement yeah. that yeah. is put in front of people, which, you know, to my mind is the greater question of academic free speech than... Yeah, and just yeah. to be clear on that, a previous point you mentioned with regard to the, the hiring practices, we're talking about forms that are in applications for professorships. Yes. That's that say a, name title, yes, career, but, and then the bottom says, do you accept our goals of diversity, inclusion, and equity? Yes. And, like, and you they know, have to this, sign that. anti-racism mean to you and explain how you and your life have promoted the tenets of anti-racism? And if you choose not to answer that question because you think it's irrelevant or unimportant or kind of a, you just don't want to answer it, that could be a cause for you not being considered for the position or it could disqualify you. Correct. And it's, I don't want to preview it too far. But yes, and this and it's more widespread than we know. It's more widespread than I, I think the number. It's not totally disheartening. The battle isn't totally lost, but I think the number is going to shock some people and hopefully lead to some change. It does lead to kind of a, a broader question and maybe a, a provocative question of what we really mean by academic freedom and what yeah. we think that the the role of these institutions should be. I mean, on, on the one hand, not to say anything that will get too much flack at you. <laughs> but on the one hand, we all we all like to say academic freedom and there are many virtues to it. On the other hand, you know, the conservative movement was launched with what was actually an attack on the concept of academic freedom. William F. Buckley's Got a Man at Yale was subtitled The Superstition of Academic Freedom. The argument that he made is that academic freedom is inherently a null concept. It cannot sustain an institution. An institution must have a particular mission and orientation. And the only question is what is that mission and orientation going to be? And I think that part of the broader concern that we, kind of arguments we used to be having in higher ed that are now filtering down into K-12 is the concern that, you know, we already don't have freedom of inquiry, freedom of expression, for academic freedom in higher ed. There is an orthodoxy that has broadly taken hold of these institutions, and it's an orthodoxy that 
most Americans, certainly many Republicans, don't like, don't want. And the real interesting question, it may or may not get to this point in a couple of years. I don't anticipate it to be this year. But you know, when William F. Buckley wrote God and Man at Yale, his real focus was the trustees of the institution. It's a private institution. When it comes to public universities, the trustees are the people, they're the legislature. And there is a reason why I think 53, 56% of Republican voters think that higher education is a net negative for American well, society. Well, but actually, you really could, you'd have a lot of fun challenging Yuval Levin, who says that all these institutions are no longer formative. They're just places where people can, you know, be their best selves and, and use them as a platform. What you're saying is, oh no, Yuval, they're still formative. They're just not formative in the way that you want. They're yes, formative they are. in a way that's anti-American and has all kinds of other aspects to it that are damaging. Yeah. I mean, institutions cannot not be formative. The question is, what is being formed? And then there's a secondary question that, you know, I've never debated Yuval on this. At some point, I might chat with him about it. Yeah. But, you know, is, is the answer to institutions that are forming citizens and students in ways that their parents would not like? Are those institutions still something that we should try to think about policy solutions being, how do we recommit to them? Or should they be, you know, how do we reassert our authority over them? Have they gone rogue enough that some degree of public policy antagonism is a proper and prudent response? Yeah. Well, with that, Max, it's great to have you back at AI. You're doing great. And thank you for joining us today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.